This is episode 273 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by our patrons. Listeners just like you can sign up to support our show and get to contribute directly to programming by asking questions and submitting ideas that they want to be covered live on the show. Plus, you get access to a library of bonus Shakespeare history content, including over 150 episodes of our show not available on public listening platforms. Explore all the fun Shakespeare stuff at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com Hi, I'm Claire McManus from the University of Roehampton in London. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. So that's something that we may have seen on Shakespeare's stage that would have been anachronistic to the actual time. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. One of Shakespeare's strongest characters is Queen Margaret, who, as a consequence of her husband's bouts with insanity, find it necessary to lead not only a country, but to stand at the helm of an entire army, leading England's military into battle and winning. It's an important story in the history of the War of the Roses and one that Jared Kirby and Hudson Classical Theatre Company decided to take on this year. Jared is a celebrated fight director and took on the challenge of staging entire battle scenes on stage for this production. And he joins us today to talk with us about how Shakespeare would have staged these battle scenes of the 16th century and what we know about Shakespeare's version of Queen Margaret, as well as how it works to stay true to history when staging these plays today. Jared Kirby has been involved in Western martial arts and combat for stage and screen for over 25 years. He teaches in New York City and the metro area and has choreographed fights off-Broadway nationally in London and Sydney, Australia. He is currently fight director for Hudson Classical Theatre Company, where he dreamed up the idea for their latest production titled Margaret, Shakespeare's Warrior Queen, an original adaptation and mashup of Henry VI, parts 1, 2, and 3, known as War of the Roses, exploring the story of Queen Margaret. It's directed by Nicholas Mar- Martin Smith and opens off Broadway on July 27th. Find out more about Jared and how you can see this production of Shakespeare's plays this summer in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Jared. Welcome back to that Shakespeare life. So good to talk to you again. And so good to be back. Thank you for having me. What weapons are used in the production of this section of the Henry plays that are true to the weaponry that would have been on stage when Shakespeare was performing these plays? Yeah, luckily, the weapon, European weaponry didn't change that much between Henry VI's time and the Elizabethan era. And so a lot of the things that you see mentioned in the plays specifically are things like bills, partisans, different kinds of pole arms. And those were definitely still being used in the 16th century as well. So they were 
any kind of a, a pole arm like that was typically used by city guards. It gave them range, right? So they could deal with people and stay far away. The weapons that were still were also used and still in both time periods, the uh, English and Scottish favored their their back swords. And so you'll still see the sword and buckler being a prominent art form in the 16th century, which was uh, sword and buckler goes back to actually our earliest European treatise, which is 1293. And that's a manuscript that shows uh, sword and buckler techniques. So that had also been used and continued being used. So a lot of that stuff is is very similar. The biggest thing being the, the long sword is also still in use. But by the time we're looking at these shows being performed in Shakespeare's times, you had the introduction of the rapier, which would have been more like what we consider a, a side sword, uh, a broader bladed weapon than what most people think of as the rapier proper. So that's something that we may have seen on Shakespeare's stage that would have been anachronistic to the actual time. And when we're talking about the rapier, if you've ever seen um, fencers, modern day fencers in the Olympics or otherwise fencing back and forth, that's not what the rapier that would have been on stage for Shakespeare would have looked like. I wanted to make that clarification. Yes, not at all. I've actually, and I have staged it that way with modern fencing masks and jackets because that was the period that that particular Hamlet was being performed in, right? But when Shakespeare talks about foils, he means a foiled weapon. So in this time period, they would blunt the weapons, round off the points so that they would do less harm. (laughs) Uh, And I do mean less. You're still going to be able to chop off a limb with a dull side sword. Makes you a little worried about what what major harm was defined as if that's that's less harm. <laughs> yeah, um, it's funny too because they talk about buttons in the the time period, and they were the size of a, a tennis ball that would go over the the tip of the weapon. Now, was this a particular sport, or this is what they did to weapons to modify them for the stage? Well, they did it for training. Okay. We have no idea what they did on stage in actuality, but, you know, I've always supposed that these are trained swordsmen. And so what I do in my stage combat company, uh, we have different standard patterns that everybody learns. And uh, that's just something that we use for training, but also if we need to do quick choreography. so. My top students and I, we can create a fight, you know, 30, 40 move fight in 10 minutes up to speed because it'll just be these patterns we know. And so I've always supposed that it was probably something along that lines. That would make complete sense, I think, especially considering repertory theater and the fact that they were redoing these productions in several places over short periods of time. I think that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Now, the section of Shakespeare's plays called 
the War of the Roses section. Now, those plays deal with the entire War of the Roses. And I wonder, how are you able to stage the combat of entire armies on stage? Because this is like England's military going to battle here. And I, you know, a stage (laughs) is just not the same size as an entire battlefield. How do you stage a battle without it looking like, you know, a mosh pit with swords? (laughs) That's a great question. And uh, the basic answer is proportion. It doesn't matter. I don't think we need 14,000 troops to convey that feeling of the battle. But we do need an appropriate number of, of fights to the space that it's being performed in. Right. So one of my favorites that I got to do was it was actually Henry five and it was a 99 seat theater, but it was pretty large. Right. And so what we were able to do here was bring those, the battle in from everywhere. For me, I think it's important during these battle scenes that the audience feels like they're in the battle. And so that means breaking that fourth wall. So I would bring, uh, actually in Henry V, we had a, a raised platform. So I had uh, archers pick off soldiers right at the top of the battle. And that was a lot of fun. And uh, so you have one side flooding in from the house and the other side from taking that from the stage. Or you can bring them in from stage right and house left, fighting stage left, house right. But I think that's the important part, that you have enough bodies moving through the space to make it feel like a battle. You're conveying that large volume, but it's it's an illusion. Yeah, and you don't need a lot of people to do that with. They can die five or six times. (laughs) you just people are not paying attention and i've even had moms and dads trying to look for their kids and not see them sometimes so uh you know you bring them on they get a big bash in the head fall off stage take the cowl off right and then they can run back on as a very you know maybe even swap weapons and run on as a very different soldier you slice their guts and they fall off stage and then throw a cloak on. You know, you can really do a lot with a limited number of actors if they're game. Ah, oh, the magic of theater. You can die multiple yeah. times and not even your mom will know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and part of why I think that's important is that a lot of what you see in these history plays, you see scene breaks. But there shouldn't be scene breaks. And I I see that done where maybe there's a battle, you know, real quick at the beginning. And then, oh, now we're on to scene two where it's this dialogue. Right. And all of a sudden there is no battle. (laughs) And I think that that's a really bad idea because it lets the audience forget that we're on a battlefield. So. I encourage uh, productions to continue that battle throughout. So there's the big onslaught at the beginning, always. And we have to have these moments, you know, sometimes rather large scenes 
during these battles, but you keep the the fight happening behind them, around them. There is no reason they can't be interrupted in their dialogue and have to defend their lives real quick. Which so is which that, is true to what's happening in the story, and I mm-hmm. I appreciate what you're saying of keeping keeping the audience aware that we didn't step away from the battle to have a conversation and then come back. Yeah, right. There are quiet places of on a battlefield, quieter places on a battlefield. That's fine, but let's be in there and don't let the audience off the hook. Another little thing I love, I just, this is a me thing also, but I'll take a, hopefully there's pieces of metal in the house or behind the audience. And so I'll be clanging pipes and stuff like that randomly. Anything to create that, that sense of chaos and that an attack can come from anywhere. Now, I know Shakespeare doesn't get everything right in his history plays, and he does make some pretty... Stark. <laughs> he makes some stark <laughs> mistakes. One of which that just stands out for me is in Shakespeare's Henry the Sixth. He mentions Machiavelli not once but twice, and Machiavelli <laughs> wasn't even born until four years after the death of Joan of Arc, and so it's way out of place. But when you come across these historical inaccuracies like this one that Shakespeare commits in these plays, how do you address them? I mean, you're trying to stay true to Shakespeare and you, but you also want to stay true to history and Shakespeare got the history wrong. So which do you prioritize when you're recreating the story? Uh, in this way, Shakespeare was definitely the Disney of his time. So um, I've never I've never heard that comparison and I'm going to save that and use it in the future. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I remember that because uh I I did a lot of research around Pocahontas when I was younger and then the movie came out and I was like oh <laughs> oh <laughs> okay yeah, yeah for me what we are doing is performing a piece of theater for an audience. And so my prime objective has always been and will continue to be entertaining that audience. In fact, I I will sit down and talk to the actors as we're working the climactic fight to half these shows and explain, right? We have a responsibility to make sure that the audience is entertained, not that anybody else is enjoying it except for them, because these are humans. The majority of people have something they do every Friday night, and yet they change those plans, hopefully paid money to sit in a dark room or outdoors and to be swept away somewhere for two hours. Or if it's New York, Shakespeare, three hours. So for me, it always comes back to serving the audience. Now, that's important because what I'm going to say is aligned with Shakespeare, right? Screw the history. It doesn't matter in the context of this play. If they came to a Shakespeare play to learn these histories, they've already done messed up. So I'm not about to try to introduce anything that would make a correction on that. What I would tend to do 
or things that may create confusion for the audience, then I would suggest cutting that, right? A brilliant director I worked with in London years ago, I was talking to him about how he edited Shakespearean texts. And he said, the first thing to go is every allusion to the gods. I was like, what? (laughs) And he said, yeah, every one of these stories that references an old uh, Roman Greek mythology or talks about Zeus or any of these things, he cuts immediately because a modern audience is no longer educated in that. And so it's not actually serving the purpose that it did when Shakespeare wrote it. Those are all stories that the audience knew and could relate to, right? So, you know, perfect example being Eleanor in Henry VI, right? When she has to walk in barefoot in the white gown, that whole scene is an allusion to something that happened in England. And it's a story that people would have known. So do we need to do these things now? Well, that's where you have to decide how is it serving the story. So if it's anachronistic and it serves the story and the audience will be entertained, then Machiavelli away. (laughs) Well, I'm sure Shakespeare will be glad to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, speaking of historical portrayals, does Shakespeare get it right with his portrayal of Margaret in this series? I mean, the real Margaret was known as a strong and powerful character, but did Shakespeare embellish her story? So this is one of those places where I'll say I'm not a Margaret expert. There are definitely people well more informed on the historical Margaret. But what I was just talking about is part of what made me interested in this idea of of merging all three Henry VI plays and just focusing on Margaret's story is because this character is so powerful. And from the little bit that I know, I would say he got it right. Uh, she was renowned in her time. We have quotes from plenty of people talking about what a badass she was. So I think I would say he definitely got it right. And it is all that much more of a a reason to tell her story instead of trying to deal with all this Henry's six character stuff around it. Like the, the guy's not interesting. (laughs) <laughs> and that's another from just, if, if we're looking at history, that's another thing Shakespeare got right. He's just <laughs> a boring dude. I'm sorry, Henry. <laughs> the thing is, like, we know this because even Shakespeare, in my opinion, even Shakespeare thought this. And I will support that with the fact that Henry VI is the only character in the canon that you don't meet only title character in the canon that you don't meet until act three. We are halfway through a play named about the man and you haven't met him. (laughs) You know, who's interesting Joan Talbot, right? Yeah. These are interesting characters. So Shakespeare leads off with them. And then about halfway through the play goes, oh yeah, this is the guy I was talking about in the title. 
Yeah, it's almost an afterthought. Oh, yeah, I guess we do have to say something about him now. (laughs) I see that. And so for me, I think that those, those decisions by Shakespeare just reinforce what a good idea this is to, to merge the plays together to get Margaret's story. Because even though she's not that much a part of Henry VI, one, what does he do? He has a different strong female character as the, the lead in that. Right. And so it almost sets the tone a little bit for introducing and meeting Margaret at the end. Well, between bringing in Disney and telling us <laughs> on a history podcast to screw the history, mm-hmm. I think I'm going to get more than a few letters about this. <laughs> you can you can tell them to contact me directly. <laughs> I because... don't think I won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I did get into a, a heated discussion uh, around very much that in working this Margaret script. Now, Nicholas Martin Smith actually did the uh, the edit and is still tweaking the script. And at our read-through, I was talking about, um, you know, there's one particular passage where it's, you know, all the history is being done in, as a monologue. And that had to go. Right. The audience isn't there for a history lesson. And uh, somebody took exception to that idea. They're like, no, that has to be in there because the audience needs to hear all of this. And to that, I replied with, you know, I'm a traditional fencing master. And one of the traditions in my lineage is Northern Italian dueling saber. Now, that tradition started with a master named Radielli in the mid-19th century, and he brought the light dueling saber into popularity. It was his pupil, Barbacetti, that made it really interesting and, and much more public and took it out into Europe and was teaching in Paris at the time that Mitra Rhodes was there on a ballet contract. And Maitre Rhodes studied it with him for several years. Then Maestro Martinez is the protege of Maitre Rhodes, and Maestro Martinez is my master. And then I said, tell me any of that back. So it's not that that hearing lineages and histories are not interesting theoretically, but as an audience, right? (laughs) It just, you trail off, you, lo- you lose it when you're sitting there, even with the best of intentions. Yeah. yeah, so I wanted to share that before they write the angry letter. Hopefully they sat through my boring lineage that they don't care about that much. And I would say that 70% of the audience easily, if not 95% of the audience. They don't know the histories. They don't care about the histories. They are there to care about characters. Which brings me to the question of Margaret in particular, because in a modern world, at least in our world, women are already seen as strong figures. There's a recognition of women in leadership, and this is not a question mark. Um, And it's certainly not a revolutionary act because women occupy roles of leadership everywhere. I mean, we have the legacy of Queen Elizabeth 
in our own lifetime to, mm-hmm. to point to as an example. So I wonder, how are you communicating the significance of what the real Margaret did in her lifetime to an audience that has much different standards and expectations? That's a great question. I think that part of having such strong female characters in Shakespeare, I feel like that is generated by Elizabeth's reign, right? There's a freedom to go there and maybe even an homage to her. In fact, in uh, Saviolo's book, I think that's the first interview we did was A Gentleman's Guide to Dueling. Saviolo finishes his whole co-duello with a whole list of amazing women throughout history. So there's definitely something happening in Elizabethan England at that time where that is a subject of interest to a literate populace. So at least the, the gentry are interested in this idea. So I don't think that it is as strange an idea as sometimes we're led to believe because we were raised on a white male history. I think in the actual time period, I don't think it was as big of a deal, right? There had been amazing women and they knew about them and they're living in the time period of an amazing woman as well. I say that to get myself off the hook a little bit because I don't think we could convey the kind of gravitas around this character to a modern audience that they would have been seen at that time period, even if I'm correct. Yeah. It's one of the gaps that I hope our show is is helping people who go to the theater do where you you perhaps do understand the the genealogies and the and the history and you can see some of those things that you might not not otherwise but yes it it is a difficult gap to if not impossible to yeah, I, to bridge i think yeah I, I just want to say that i think that it's important we approach the productions like the first star trek reboot where That as a standalone movie was amazing, right? And anybody could go and watch it and be entertained. But if you're a Trekkie and you knew the history and you knew the old ones, there were at least 10 to 12 inside jokes that would make you laugh harder. Absolutely. Because you knew it. And that's where I think that you can put together a production that serves both. Absolutely. I agree completely. Now, I want you to tell us about your favorite part of this particular production. If we go and see this play, what scene would you want the audience to to pay special attention to at the theater and just say, this one, this is really cool. Look for this. The end. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Well, no, because... Because we're telling Margaret's story, and this is something we talked about a lot. uh, So, spoiler alert. Don't pay attention now if you're coming to see the show. Okay. But uh, at the the very end, right, she's on the ground in a puddle. Richard says, okay, I'll kill you. Edward stops him. They all walk off. Richard is going to be the last one out of the room, turn around and kill her. Oh, no. Yep. And then turn to the audience and say, now it's the winter of our discontent. 
Oh, that's perfect. Oh my goodness. And that's that's the end because I felt this is, you know, here we are even taking more liberty, but I don't think that Mad Margaret and Richard III really captures this woman. And so I felt very strongly and luckily Nicholas agreed that this plane needed to end. She needed to be taken like out in a blaze of glory, I guess. Yeah, because it's what she wanted, right? So hopefully my goal is to give this more of that gladiator feel where she's done. She's lost. She's not going to be a queen anymore. Her kiddo is dead. She doesn't have any reason to be around anymore. And so that's why she asked for it. And uh, so we're going to give it to her. (laughs) Well, there you go. So I know, well, we're all fired up now to come and see this production. So tell us where and how to be sure and get our seats. Yeah, Hudson Classical Theater Company performs on the Upper West Side in New York. It's at the Soldiers and Sailors Monument, which is right near 90th and Riverside Drive. And they'll perform at 6.30 p.m. So make sure you get there closer to 6 because it's just a big, beautiful outdoor theater space uh so you need to get your seats that sounds great that's perfect so now you know exactly where to go and what time they'll be there so get there early to see the production we will place links to the hudson classical theater company in the show notes for today's episode so you can find that and you will have you know an address for your gps if you need it but go and get your seat there and see this incredible production. Now, Jared, I know we would love to learn more about Margaret and about the history of weaponry um, from this play. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Well, obviously, Staging Shakespeare's Violence uh, by myself and Seth Dewar. Uh, All the history plays are in volume one, which is out. Volume two is still in the works. And then... That's the main one. <laughs> Is that selfish? I don't know. It's not. No, it's an excellent book. And Jared's previous episode with us, Jared's been on that Shakespeare Life a couple of times, but staging Shakespeare's violence, both Jared and Seth come on the show to talk about that. And so I will link to their episode where they share even more history. There's also links to Salviolo's work um, that you heard Jared mention today. So there's a lot of, of bonus history there as well. So make sure you check out the show notes to find more on that. Now, Jared, as you know, we ask everyone that comes to that Shakespeare life, this next question, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. And for you in particular, since you've been here before, you um, can add to your desert island library or choose one of the ones you've chosen in the past. It's up to you. Yeah. So I I was like, "Ah, I wonder what I said before. (laughs) And I was like, will it match? So that can be a fun game. Find out if this is a new book or uh, the same book. But One of the books that really inspires me is called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. So it's that play on the art of war. And it is an amazing book for any artist because he talks about a lot about how we limit ourselves and the things that we do to limit ourselves and then goes into some of the reasons and 
things that we need to deal with and process to stop limiting ourselves. Because everybody has the ability to do amazing things. And then we put all these barriers in the way. That is a great book. And now you have a reason to go back and listen to Jared's a previous episode additionally, because now you can check and see whether or not that was the selection he picked from our last episode. Cause we don't actually put the desert Island links in the show notes. You do have to listen to hear what guests recommend there. So oh, interesting. Yeah. It's, a, it's a little bit of an Easter egg hidden in there. Thank nice. you so much, Jared, for being with us again today and for taking the time to share the fun history of staging battles in Shakespeare's plays. And it's fun to get to look back at how Shakespeare would have done fight scenes in his lifetime and what it looks like to recreate those works in the modern stage. We wish you the absolute best with your production. And as they say, break a leg. Thanks so much. It was always wonderful to talk to you. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. Every rating and review helps other Shakespeare enthusiasts find our show. And as you know, we love to connect with other Shakespeare friends. If you'd like to see visual elements that coordinate with today's episode, including pictures of the characters from Shakespeare's War of the Roses plays and some of the fencing masters that you heard Jared mention in our conversation today, then check out the show notes for today's episode. It's the fastest way to get direct access to the resources you hear about on That Shakespeare Life, and it's the best way to sign up to get your tickets and find a place to sit when you want to go see this production of the Margaret play in New York City. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 273. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP273. If you love listening to our show here each week and you're excited about exploring more Shakespeare history, then consider becoming a patron of our show. Patrons get access to over 150 additional episodes of That Shakespeare Life that's not available on public listening platforms. There's also sneak peeks at upcoming guests, the chance to chat with me about the making of our show and some of the behind the scenes looks at what it takes to put together That Shakespeare Life, as well as the chance to submit your own questions to upcoming guests that you'd like to have asked during an episode. Along with all of the fun insider information about our show itself, there's also bonus history content, including resources for educators that like to take our podcast into their classrooms. We have hands-on activity kits, worksheets, lesson plans, and so much more that all coordinate with our show and with Shakespeare's Place. That Shakespeare Life's Patreon Club is a great place to cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.